Good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, my name's Ty. I am one of the pastors here. It is a joy to be with you. I don't know about you guys, um, but like throughout the week, I'm thinking about Sunday. I'm just glad to be here. I want to be together here with you, uh, the family of God, and to worship God together. So it really is, when I say it's a joy and a pleasure to be with you, it really is. I'm thinking about you all week long. Um, But nonetheless, I'm glad that you are here as well, I got a couple announcements before we get started. If you were with us at the end of last year, we had this giving campaign that we partook. Uh, it was called Beyond 2022, and we tried to raise $100,000, and all the money was going to go over the seas. And so I just want to come to you and let you know that we did pretty good on that. We raised almost $70,000, which I think is great. Way to go, everybody. And so uh, I just want to let you know, like, all this money is going to be pushed overseas. It's going to be to Acts 29, Church Planning Network. It's going to be to Carlos and Myra there and the Gift Foundation in El Salvador, which I heard about a couple weeks ago, Andrew Elder over in Ireland, Arjuna in uh, India, and then also with Karim in Turkey. So thank you guys so much for giving that. And we want to see God do a work not only here but around the world as well. So thanks for being a part of that. And then secondly, I'm going to invite Andrew Gatz uh, up to the front with me. Andrew Gatz, where you at, man? There you are. No. Take, take your time, bro. Take your time. It's cool. Not like I'm trying to do something up here. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Andrew Gatz. You might know him. You probably have received an email from him. He's been our pastoral assistant for a few years now. Uh, we love Andrew and just uh, who he is and his presence here with the staff. Well, a little over a couple years ago, he joined our elder candidate process. And so over the past couple plus years, we've been testing him and training him to be a pastor, to be an elder at Grace Point Church. And just so you know, uh, our senior pastor here at Grace Point Church is Jesus. And so under Jesus, the Bible says he, he gives the church, uh, the, the care of the church over to a team or plurality of elders, which would be pastors as well. And so we're always trying to figure out, like, God, who are you calling to be next elders, next pastors to join the team? And so uh, we have tested and trained him for over the past couple years, and we believe he has the character qualifications, what we see in 1 Timothy 3, Titus, uh, 1 Peter 5, Acts 20. Uh, we, we believe he has the theological astuteness to be able to handle the Word of God properly, be able to teach, be able to guard the doctrines of the church. And so we've done all of our investigative work, and so now what we're doing is we're putting him before you to see if we've missed anything. So I'm serious. So like, if you know anything about him that we, we need to know about, anything bad, like he's done something wrong, he caught him listening to Nickelback, whatever that is, um, watching Transformer movies, I don't know. Like you gotta, you gotta, it's kind of like American Idol, like we did, the judges did their work, and now it's to you people, except uh, like American Idol, uh, this is important, that's not. Uh, and so uh, if, if you know of something we need to know about, would you please uh, email us at elders at gracepointvegas.com? Uh, But I I say this also during this week of investigation from you guys. If there's something that he has done where you've seen God work through him or some growth in him or something like that, would you email as well? Because we want to pass that along to him as well uh, because uh, no one has ever been over-encouraged and encouragement is a good thing. So don't withhold doing good or saying good uh, to our brother here if there's something good as well. So please let us know you have a week. If everything goes well, uh, we'll be bringing him up here next Sunday, and we will be, what they say, installing him as an elder, which sounds like an appliance in a house, but we'll be installing him as an elder as one of the pastors here with us at Grace Point Church. If something comes up, then it's just going to be an awkward Sunday next Sunday. So please let us know. Sound good? All right, if you see him out there, let him know we love him. Thanks, bud. All right, let's get started. Um, There's a novel out there called 
the Poisonwood Bible. In it, author Barbara Kingsolver tells the story of a man by the name of Nathan Price. He was a missionary in the Congo in the 1960s. Uh, and Nathan, he was a very, uh, a, a very serious Christian, yet his actions, his words, and his attitudes really did not reflect the heart of Jesus. He was harsh, he was argumentative, and he really lacked compassion. Uh, there's a story within the book that said, that said one time in the Congo church, he had all these new believers, and he was wanting these new believers to be baptized, but these new believers were really hesitant to be baptized. Now you're asking, what was their hesitation? Well, the river in which they were going to be baptized was full of crocodiles. <laughs> Nonetheless, he relented and made them get baptized. On another occasion, the church members tried to explain to Nathan that uh, the word glorious in their language, uh, if not said properly or, or uh, pronounced properly, came off as the word uh, poison wood. And he, they tried to inform him, like, hey, the way you're saying it, it sounds like poison wood. Well, he refused to change the way he said it, and at the end of every one of his sermons, he would say, uh, to the glorious name of Jesus, or what they were hearing was, to the poison wood of Jesus. And so like, it was, uh, it was quite, kind of a mess there. Well, at the end of the story, Nathan's daughter writes this. She says, I am born of a man who believed he could tell nothing but the truth while he set aside for all time the glorious Bible, or in his words, the poison wood Bible. I think this story kind of challenges us just a little bit of like, does, does our life line up with the glorious Bible? In us, are we becoming Christ-like like Jesus? Does our belief uh, line up with our practices or does our talk line up with our walk as well? Well, today we're beginning our brand new series during this Lenten season and we're going to be going through the parables of Jesus, just a few parables. Now, for some of you, you're like, wait a minute, uh, I heard through the, the grapevine, I heard through the river mill that we were going to start the book of Romans during Lent. Well, I did promise that, uh, but I'm going to have to go back on that, and we're going to push that to the Sunday after Easter. So it's coming, uh, but we needed to change, and we're going to do some parables during the season of Lent. Romans is coming, I guarantee you. Uh, and that we changed it for a reason. I'll let you know later, and it's a good reason. Uh, but nonetheless, we're going to go through the parables of Jesus. This is 40-ish days, six Sundays of looking at various parables leading up to Easter Sunday. Now, uh, the question I have for you is, what leads up to Easter Sunday? What must happen before the resurrection? The answer is the death of Jesus, the, the cross. And Jesus has told us throughout the Gospels that by losing our life, we actually find it. He has told us that denying ourselves actually brings life to us. He tells us, he tells us to follow him as well. And so we want to follow Jesus to the cross. Now, Jesus physically died. I don't think he's calling us to physically die with him as well. But what he's calling us to do is to die to ourselves, to die to our sin patterns and sinfulness, to die to our selfishness. This is the season for us to practice death. Now, historically, during the season of Lent, uh, usually believers will, 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 will kind of pick three things in which to work through, uh, and typically those three things are prayer. They'll have an increased sense of prayer, an increased sense of dependency upon God through repentance and prayer. Also, through fasting, you hear people talk about Lent. They're giving up something, and it's to remove an obstacle in our life to, that is hindering us to follow Jesus or allow Jesus to be formed more in us. And then also giving, people would give more to the poor and to the needy and to, to help uh, the causes of Christ throughout the world. And so if you're here today and you're observing Lent and you're praying more, that way you can repent and uh, be more attuned to Jesus, I'm glad you're here. And for some of you, you would say, hey, I'm fasting from these things, whether it be food or social media or something like that, because I, I want my heart to be more aligned with God. I don't want these distractions. 
I'm glad you're here. For some of you, you're giving more, whether it be to the church or to like uh, people like Carlos and Myra and El Salvador or whatever that is. Hey, I'm glad you're here. You're allowing the, the grips of greed to loosen up on you. And for some of you, you're like, I'm not doing any of that. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And so uh, we're going to do this together. Now, you may be asking, Ty, what, what, what really is the heart of Lent? Well, um, there's a guy in the, in the Gospels by the name of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, uh, and he was the cousin of Jesus, and he was teaching people about the kingdom of God and baptizing them. And he was gaining a lot of notoriety, and people were coming from far off to see him and hear about this good news. And then he says this thing on them to make sure they understand who he is and what he's all about. He says in John 3.30, and I think this is kind of the heart of Lent, he says this, he, being John the Baptist, he, or I'm sorry, being John, Jesus, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's kind of the heart of Lent. We can decrease. Like all about us and our selfishness and our wants and our whims and our wills and our ways can decrease so Jesus can increase in our lives. And so that is my hope as we go through the six weeks of these parables of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 15 today. That's where we're going to begin. Matthew 15, it's in your New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. I say this each and every week you need one because we lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And I want you to follow along. I want you to enjoy your Bible and know your Bible and study your Bible and love your Bible because within it, it tells us about Jesus and it shows us life. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we want to give you one. We have them in English and Spanish at these two front tables, the back as well, and out at center point. And if you've got a smartphone with you, you can go to version. It's on there as well. But we'll be in Matthew uh, 15. Here's what I simply complexly want to do today. I just want to explain the parable, the, par the sort of parable uh, that, that's going on here. I want to give you uh, what's going on within the context and, and show you the different angles of it. Then after that, I want to ask one question, and that's it. We'll get in, we'll get out, we'll be done. But I want to go through it, and I want to look at one question. And I'm praying that this one question will help create some congruency in us all congruency on what we believe and how we live that out. I was explaining this to Angie uh, the other day. We were talking about congruency, and she gets to smiling at me. She's like, uh, every time you say congruency, I see a little symbol, like a little math symbol. You guys remember that, right? There's like a, a math symbol. I didn't know that either, and I, and I said, get behind me, Satan. And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, because we all know that math is the language of the devil. Am I right? I mean, he like, I think at the fall is when he started adding number, or letters in the number system and algebra, but that's a whole nother conversation another day. But congruency just means where we align. Our lives have alignment in it. And that's what we want to look at today. So what's going on? Well, up until this point in the Gospels, Jesus has a very public ministry. Like people are beginning to see and hear about Jesus and see his works and his miracles and hear about all this good news that he's talking about. And up until this point, we see him feeding the 5,000 plus with the little kids Lunchable, and it's an amazing feat. We see him uh, like healing people and helping people. We see him walking on water right before this uh, situation as well. Uh, then Jesus gets to this place called uh, uh, Genesaret. And people hear him, hear that he's come there. And so since he's in this little, little region there, they send all the sick people to him. And their thought of is like, if we can just get around Jesus, if we can just touch like the edge of his clothes, then we're going to get healed. And that's what happens. Like people just touching Jesus like jacket or whatever. And all of a sudden, boom, they're healed from whatever ails them. Now you would think this is a very positive thing and people would be very happy about this, right? And everyone for the most part was, except for some people. Some people didn't like this. 
And the some people were the Pharisees and the scribes. And so they heard about Jesus doing all this, and they're going down to investigate Jesus. They're going down to make sure Jesus is minding his P's and Q's and crossing his T's and dotting his I's and all that. And so that's where we pick up on the story. Now, when we read the story, uh, please, listen to me on this, please do not put yourself in Jesus' shoes because they're not going to fit. Because there's this point of where he feels like he's calling out people for being hypocrites. And what we want to do is we want to put on Jesus' shoes and be like, yeah, we're going to call out all the hypocrites in our life. But Jesus, is, uh, his shoes is much like the glass slipper in the, in, in the Cinderella story. And we're just going to be the ugly stepsister and it's not going to fit very well. And so if you're looking for a shoe to put on in this parable, let's put on the Pharisee's shoes because that's probably more, more honest of who we are, okay? You're already like, I don't like that. Cool, let's go. Verse one. It's true. First one, are you there? Chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So, I mean, they traveled from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? I want you to hold on to that. Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So the Pharisees are tracking down Jesus They've heard of all that Jesus is doing. And so they asked them the question, like, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat? Because they're breaking the tradition of the elders. Which, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, is just a, a foolish question. Like, they, they should have heard all this good news about Jesus and gone to Jesus and be like, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's written about in the Old Testament? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or what must we do to, to worship you, serve you, and love? But they didn't. They basically asked about the hand-washing principles of the disciples. You know how foolish that sounds? Let me, let me equate it into modern terms. Uh, imagine I know football, sports games. Imagine I know this. Uh, and so uh, the, the Kansas City team won football this year, right? And so there's the pitcher on the Kansas City football team named Patrick Mahomes. He's the guy that, that throws that ball, right? Uh, imagine like he wins the, the, the most important player trophy and the whole thing. And, and so he wins the most important player trophy and a news reporter comes up to him and says, hey, you just won like the best player award in this game. And uh, so I got a question for you. He's like wondering what they're going to ask about. It. Like, hey, I heard your brother is keto uh, and he just ate some carbs. Tell me more about that. <laughs> that all that was just dumb what I said, right? Now, now you get this question. Now you understand this question of like how actually dumb it is. So uh, the, the Pharisees, why are they asking this question? What is going on? The Pharisees and the scribes are basically experts of the law. And when I say the law, I'm, I mean the Old Testament, but very specifically as well, uh, the first five books, the Torah uh, of the Old Testament. And they're, they're basically uh, accusing Jesus, his disciples, not Jesus, but his disciples of breaking law. But it's not God's law that they're breaking. Because remember I said, hang on to this. Remember in verse 2 what it says? What are they breaking? It says it in verse 2, the tradition of the elders. What does that mean? Well, if you look in the Old Testament law in God's word, uh, it was not commanded that everyone must do this hand-washing thing before they would eat. Uh, it was basically commanded that uh, the priest were to wash themselves up before they go in and offer sacrifices, before they ministered in the tabernacle. But no such requirement was put upon all of the people. And so in the Old Testament, you, you have 
you know, these various laws. Well, if you kind of follow the storyline of the Old Testament, God's people disobeyed God time and time again, and God's like, fine. He sends them into exile, takes them out of their place, takes them out of temple and all that kind of stuff. And then later on, he puts them back in their place. And when they go back to Jerusalem and they have temple and all that, they just rediscover God's law. This is before Jesus comes. And when they rediscover law, like there's like weeping of happiness and weeping of sadness of like, you know, all the time they've missed of like worshiping God. And there was these people that formed that says, you know what? We're going to protect ourselves. We're going to protect the people from disobeying God's word again. So let's put some rules around God's word. That way, uh, no one will break God's word. Almost like a hedge around God's word so no one will get over the hedge. No one will break these rules to get to the commandments of God, which sounds like a really good thing. But over the years, it turned sideways to where the tradition of the elders or these extra rules ended up becoming side by side with God's word. And if not careful, sometimes the Pharisees put them above God's word. Is that good or bad? Very bad. Very bad. These traditions were known as the halahal, which is a nice Hebrew word to say. Later on was codified in the Mishnah. And this Mishnah was basically became law to them. And what they're trying to do is they're saying in the Mishnah, it says everyone, every Jewish person must consecrate, purify themselves before they eat. And then they see Jesus' disciples just grubbing it up with dirty hands. And they're like, they're breaking our traditions. Okay. Does that make, make sense now? So the disciples were not breaking God's word or God's law. They were breaking the elders or the Pharisees or the religious laws of the time. They were breaking tradition. Tradition. Tradition is different than God's word. God's word is from God, through people, but from God. This is the word of God, inspired by God. Tradition is from people. And it can be good and it can be bad, okay? So let let me say it like this. I want to make sure you understand. Traditions are good when they help us obey God's word. Traditions are good when they form us more into Christ's likeness based upon God's word. Traditions are good when they help us kind of practically figure out uh, God's will and God's way and how to walk in that in, in obedience and submission to God. Traditions are good when they sit under God's word in order to serve God's word. Does that make sense? Traditions are bad when they do the opposite of that. Traditions are bad when they sit alongside God's word. Traditions are bad when they are over God's word. Got it? Now, the church, we have traditions. Families, familia, has traditions as well. Culture has traditions. And we need to make sure we put those traditions in their proper place. Let, let me give you some church traditions that if not careful, can, can, it, we can give them the same weight as God's word, if not put them above. Let me give you a tradition. We at Grace Point Church meet at a 9, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sundays. Where in the Bible does it tell us to do that? Thou shalt meet at 9, 6, and, or 9, 11, 6. It doesn't say it. It doesn't do it. Let me give you a note. Ash Wednesday. Some of you here, you really struggle with Ash Wednesday, Lent, Advent, because you think, oh, that's Catholic or whatever. Uh, But listen, we try to put Ash Wednesday in its proper place. Is Ash Wednesday in the Bible? And the answer is no. Nowhere in the Bible to be found that thou shalt put an ashy mark on your head on this Wednesday. Not not at all. 
uh, our church history informs us of that, and we take that tradition, and we want that tradition to sit under God's word in order to serve God's word. And so when you come here on Ash Wednesday, it's, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded together by God's word that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And because of Christ and all of his work, therefore go and consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. That's what we did on Ash Wednesday. And we had this physical reminder to remind us of like, I am dust, I'm going to die, but Jesus, he's going to rise and I will rise with him because of my faith and trust in him. Isn't that great? That's why, but it's not. Here's another one, Lord's Supper each Sunday. Now I would argue, I think the Bible prescribes maybe, or maybe I'll say describes the, the believers taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But we can, we can, we can eh, maybe, maybe not, but we do it every week here. Some of you would say, well, Ty, it's going to lose its meaning. Every time we do uh, you know, uh, the Lord's Supper together on a Sunday, it kind of loses its significance. No, it doesn't, unless you let it do that. I mean, like, I, I kiss my wife every day. It does not lose its significance, right? And so frequency, that, that, that is a, a good thing. Or community groups. Community groups are not in the Bible. Second Opinions, chapter 5, verse 2, thou shalt be in a community group. It's not in there. <laughs> we, see some, we see some description of how disciples are living together within the New Testament, and so we try to like model some of those things for sure, but it's, it's not in there. Our traditions are there to serve the church. There, there are some traditions or some thoughts behind the church that we put equal with the Bible or above. Let, let me give you a few of those. Um, when I say these things, your church background is about to come into play. So if you have a church background or your church background stereotype thinking is about to come into play. Um, one, the pastor should wear a suit or some robes. Does not say that in the Bible. I have a jacket on a day. You caught me on a good day. I got a jacket on a day. Uh, I've had people like, you know what? Why, why don't you dress better than that? Like if the Lord, if the Lord would come to your house, you would dress better than that. Wouldn't you do that if the president came to your house? I'm like, well, the Bible doesn't tell me. The Bible tells me to put some clothes on. Other than that, I'm good to go. <laughs> Tattoos. That's another one. You say, well, the Bible says in Leviticus, read the context. Read the context. How about alcohol? And not, let me say, the Bible allows for alcohol. The Bible does not allow for alcohol. It's up to the Holy Spirit and the conscious in you of like, can you, can you not? Can you wisely, can you not? Uh, drunkenness is always a sin. Absolutely. I've had people tell me this. Church leaders and pastors should not drink any alcohol. Why? Because they should set an example for the people. I'm like, that sounds great. It's just not in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. Because if that were true standard that we held here at Grace Point Church, then Jesus and Paul and the rest of them couldn't be church leaders here. Now, I think there has to be great wisdom. And I think there's like, and I know there's, there, there's hurts and pains that come from that. And I don't want to minimize that. I'm just using this as an example. Or uh, that Christian can only watch Christian things and listen to Christian music. God help us if that's true. <laughs> it's, but it's not true. Now, it doesn't mean we just need to be watching garbage and there's certain things we like. That's, just that, that's not for me. There needs to be wisdom in that. But, but do, you, do you hear what I'm saying? There's these traditions, if not careful. I've been around the church block long enough to where people elevate those to God's law. I'm like, I'm out of here and you're in sin and X, Y, Z. I'm like, well, show, me the, show me the Bible. As a Christian, you've got to be a Republican. All right, let me even it out. You got to be a Democrat. <laughs> See, you hate that. I, like, there's just, I mean, and then we can go cultural things of like, you got to look a certain way, you got to do it. Like, oh my gosh. We need to understand that traditions are good when they serve the word. Traditions are good when they help us to apply the word. 
traditions are good when they remind us or allow us to rehearse or allow us to respond to the goodness of God. That's when traditions are good. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan has this quote, and I hope you get it, because it takes a minute to think to it. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, so he's making a juxtaposition right there. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. All that said, there are times in our lives we need to be evaluating the traditions, the things we believe. Are they biblical or are they just traditions? If they're just traditions, do they serve the Bible or do they hinder, nullify, or keep me from the Bible? And if they do, it's time to drop them, okay? All right, let me keep going. So Jesus... They asked him a question, and Jesus is going to answer it with a question. I love that. That is the best. He always answers, typically answers with a question. Verse 3. You still with me? All right. I'll, I'll, give me a minute. We'll see if I can lose you. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God? You see what he did right there? They're worried about the disciples breaking traditions of the elders. He's like, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? So we should ask ourselves this. Are we breaking the commandments of God? God's word for the sake of any kind of traditions. Now, it feels like this is a loaded question. Why is Jesus asking this question? I'm glad you asked. Next verse, verse four. For God commanded, this is Jesus talking to him, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. What does the honor your father and mother remind you of? Come on. 10 commandments. What number is it? Come on, you got this. One, two, three, four, fifth. It's the fifth one, right? Fifth one. And there's some added Old Testament, those who uh, revile father or mother must surely die. But Jesus is referring to the fifth commandment in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. Why is he why is he talking about that? When did like when did he just like they're talking about washing hands, like, well, you're not honoring the fifth commandment and you're you're not honoring your mother and father. Where do we get with that? Well, he tells us, verse five. But you say, it's what he's saying to them, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He's just basically telling them, you disobey God by your tradition. You disobey God's word. You're making it void by your tradition. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Uh, they had this thing. The Pharisees have formulated this thing called, it's called Corbin. You ever heard of Corbin. Corbin was the practice of pledging money to the temple to be paid upon your death, which sounds like a great thing. It's really not that bad of a thing. The idea was like, hey, when I die, all my money, all my possessions will go to the temple, go to church, or go to the, the, these good things. Uh, it sounds great, but, but what they're doing is they're kind of living out uh, of a loophole here. Uh, these funds that they were set aside for religious purposes could not be uh, used or given to anyone else's parents, even if their parents had need. And part of, listen, don't miss this, because I'm getting older and I need this to be said, and my children will be here during the second gathering and really need to hear this. <laughs> Honoring your mother and father, uh, the, the, the part of that practically is taking care of them when they're older. No amens. I see your gray hair out there. You better say Amen. Yes, you're supposed to. And so they would basically say, hey, you know, mom and dad would be in, in need. They'd be like, hey, we need some help. We need this. You know, we're older. We can't work. We need help. And they'd be like, Corbin, sorry about your luck. Can't, can't help you out at all. I've, 
all this money I have, which they could use for themselves while they're alive, I'm just going to have to, you know, the rest of it, it's for God, not for you. Um, this is what Jesus is talking. He's like, you, you're breaking a commandment for your own tradition. And it sounds like a good thing, but you're using the loophole. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying this, like, you have no compassion. There, there is, when you look at God's law, you need to look at it and then you need to look into it. There is a heart to God's law. And, and honoring your mother and father is for, out of love, out of respect, and out of compassion that you would care for your parents. And Jesus is like, this is, this is not love, and this is not respect, and this is not compassion. You are breaking, you're breaking God's law for your own little laws. Why? You ever just wonder why? Why are the Pharisees doing this? Like, why would they do Corbin and not take care of their parents? And then they're talking about, like, the disciples. Why are they, you know, not washing their hands? Why, why are they doing that? Perhaps selfish gain. I mean, they get to keep all the money for themselves. Selfish gain. Per- perhaps this external stuff really makes them look pious and makes them look holy and makes them look righteous. Perhaps. Or let me turn it back around and ask a question to us. Which is easier? to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit or to follow religious man-made traditions? Don't answer. Which is easier? Don't answer. For us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, which is easier? Or just do some religious things, some external things. Which is easier? Let me give you some examples. Don't answer. Which is easier, to have patience or abstain from alcohol? Remember, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. Which is easier, to have gentleness or to be really good at fitness? Don't answer. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Which is easier? To have self-control in areas of your life, which is a fruit of the Spirit, or to ha- hold church gatherings on Saturdays and make sure everyone else does as well and tell them they're wrong when they do? Which is easier? Faithfulness, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit as well, or not listening to bad music, especially Nickelback. Which is easier, to cultivate fruit of the Spirit or just do some external religious things? Can I answer for us? Do external religious things. It's easier. I can just do some stuff. That's easier. It doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take too much effort. I can just do a bunch of religious garbage. I can just do a bunch of abstaining from things that's just silly or whatever. I can just like judge everybody around. I, I can do those things for a while, and then they start to look gross where the fruit of the Spirit, to actually live by the Spirit, it takes communing with God. It takes listening to God. It takes being in His Word. It takes surrendering to Him. It takes submitting to Him. It takes denial of self. It takes a little death in me. I'm going to argue this is harder, but this brings, brings life. Imagine, which we'll take an imagination, imagine you had an apple tree out back. Again, you can't grow apples out here, but imagine. And imagine this said apple tree dies. And you look at this apple tree, you're looking out your back window like, what a sad tree. I'm going to bring it back to life. You know I'm going to bring it back to life? I'm going to go to Smith's and I'm going to buy a bushel of apples. And I have my high-powered stapler and I'm going to go out there and staple these apple to this tree. And then I'm going to step back and be like, wow, look at this beautiful living tree. And then your spouse looks at you and like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Because what happens in a week to those apples on the tree? And what, what is, tell, tell me the features of a rotten apple. They stink. Do, do you see where I'm going with this? 
Like, like we can do this man-made stuff. Yay, traditions. It's easy at times. We can hold it up for a while. It's going to stink after a while. Or we can remain in Christ. We can trust Christ. We can lean into Christ. We can trust, we can just like be faithful to Christ, obey Christ, submit to Christ. There's a difference. You must be connected to the source. Let me, let me, let me show you a little bit more. Look at verse seven. You're going to love this. Verse seven. So this is Jesus talking to the religious elite. Like these are, like these, these are important people. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah, Old Testament, prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their... Now, don't miss this. These people honor me with their what? But their what? Their heart is far from me. In vain, vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, like the teachings, the commandments of men. Jesus calls them hypocrites for two reasons, and we need to hear these. Two reasons. Reason number one, their actions are merely external and do not come from the heart. They're just stapling apples on a dead tree. Number two, their teachings are not from God, but reflect human tradition. They're not teaching the word of God. These people are supposed to be teaching the word of the God. They're supposed to be like priests to the people. And they're supposed to tell them, thus said the Lord. And yet they're going, thus said us. That's what they're doing right here. And that calls them a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is this, when, you, when your life doesn't match your words, when your heart and your mouth don't align, when there is no congruency. Perhaps the work of following Jesus is trying to make our life match our calling in Christ. Trying to live out what is true of us in Christ. Perhaps that's the work in our life. Perhaps the work of following Jesus is to have some congruency. Nonetheless, back in the text, Jesus just slays the religious leaders, and I'd argue us a little bit as well. And now he's getting ready to sit with his disciples and tell them what all this means. So we need to listen up. Verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, which I love this because uh, I think this is him grabbing a football and spiking it in the religious leader's face. Why do I think this? Because hear and listen is going to be what's called the, a little bit maybe, the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Anyone know the Shema? Hear, O Israel, O Lord, our Lord. Hear, O Israel. Come on, Ty. Hear, O Israel, <laughs> the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord God with your heart. So the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. I think he's kind of just doing that a little bit. Maybe, maybe not. He says this. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Defile, positive or negative? negative? It's not good. It's like dead, it's unclean, it's bad, okay? It's bad. And then verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, you have to understand, uh, you have to be uh, gracious toward the disciples. Like the s- disciples at that time would be, uh, as people would be, Jewish people would be, like fanboys of the Pharisees. Like they have their posters on the wall. They have their like baseball trading cards and all that kind of stuff. I got Rabbi Shemal. Like, you know, they're trading them around. Like, it's, like it's a, this, is a, this is like, this is their like superstars. Like these are the rock stars of the time. Like Jesus, you're offending them. And Jesus is like honey badger. He don't care. He's like, well, I, don't, I, I could care less. Because that's Jesus. He does not care. And I, I love that. Verse 13. Jesus answered. He said, every plant, oh boy, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Do, do, do you hear what he's saying? Who's he talking about? Let them alone. They, who's he talking about? They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
Pharisees have all this respect and all this street cred, and Jesus is like, they ain't got nothing when it comes to God. It's like God didn't plant them. If God did not plant them, then who planted them? Does this remind you of any other parable? Come on, come on, Bible readers. Does this remind you of any other parable? That's it. There you go. Wheat and tares. Yep, yep, yep. Now, if we kind of modernize this a little bit, Jesus is talking about false teachers. Would you agree? So what is Jesus, what is God going to do with the false teachers of the day? What is he, he going to do with those who are leading people by the traditions of men or leading people away from God and his word? What is he going to do with the Creflos and the Joyce and the Joel and the Kenneth and even the Ty? Because I have to submit myself to God's word as well. I want to make sure I'm teaching the right things. What is he going to do? He says, let them alone. In the end, if there's continuation of that, there'll be judgment. Or he can redeem it now. And I, you know, here's the thing about, let me just say this very clearly. The elders of, elders of Grace Point Church are imperfect. Newsflash. Amen. There it is. <laughs> God's word is perfect. And so when I preach, I, I want to submit myself to God's word. And I may say something inaccurate. And so the elders, the Bible gives us clearance. The Bible gives us abilities to go to the elders and say, hey, uh, I witnessed, because it's witnessed, something inaccurate from the Bible. And we want to be humbled and be like, oh my gosh, forgive me. And I'll come back up here and say, hey, I said this about God's word and I was off about this X, Y, Z or whatever. And we do this as a team where there's plurality and equality there. That way we can be challenged in our character and our life and our teaching and all that. Why? Because this matters. And because as an elder, as a pastor, Hebrews tells me that I will have to give an account to God himself of how I led. And so that matters. And so when it comes to these other teachers, I ain't got time to worry about them. I got to worry about myself. But I know that God is going to take care of that. So let me keep going. Let me keep going. Peter's like, so what does this mean to us? Look at, look at what happens in verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us, which is, it's kind of a parable. So let's see, he's, explain this parable to us. Jesus said, are you still without understanding? And like when we hear that, if not careful, we hear uh, potentially Jesus like, are you, are you an idiot? Uh, but I don't think he is. I think Jesus is kind and patient to, to his followers there um, to where, are you still without understanding? Like, are you not getting this yet? Maybe. Uh, verse 17. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Please don't make me explain that. <laughs> I say enough questionable things. You understand that, right? Michael, Michael Scott cringe. Okay. Um, then he says in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. It's so funny. We'll get mad at someone. I'm like, I gave them a piece of my mind. I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You gave them a piece of your heart. That's what came out. Proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. So Jesus has been talking about, what, there's been washing of hands and obedience and what comes out of your lips and your heart's far from me. And now he's talking about your mouth. But then he says, but what comes out of your, your heart? And we think, oh, this is going to be, Jesus is really going to pump us up. Now he's going to tell us, hey, everything coming out of your heart is A-okay. Verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So he circles back around and answers the Pharisees' questions. Like, it's got nothing to do with anything. Is this a positive list or a negative list? Negative. 
negative list. I mean, when you really look at this list here, uh, Jesus, he's already covered commandment number five, honoring your mother and father. But if you look at this list here, murder, that's uh, commandment six, adultery, commandment seven, stealing, that's commandment eight, lying, that's commandment nine, and possibly there's some coveting in there, there's commandment 10. So he just hit like, you know, five through 10 right there, coming from our hearts. It looks like we're in trouble. It looks like there's nothing good in us. It looks like uh, we have no way to be congruent in our life. Well, there's the parable. Now let me get to the question. I, uh, I wrestled with this ending. I usually write my messages on Wednesday, if not Thursday, but uh, I didn't write this whole ending because I just really wrestled with it. I, did, like, I don't know what to say and how to end this. And so uh, I was talking, uh, Matt and Daniel Butler were at the house on Friday, and we were just sitting, just chopping up about life and this, this, and that. And I was like, hey, man, I really struggle with this message. So we all get our Bible out, and we kind of walk through it. And I was like, man, you should preach this message. But then I was like, no, I have to preach this message. But anyway, um, here, here's what Jesus is saying from the words of Matt Butler. The heart of the problem is that the heart is the problem. I know that's good, right? Man's greatest need is not to try to clean his hands or fix his life on the outside. Man's greatest need is a change of the heart on the inside. Why? Because holiness begins in the heart. Being set apart for Christ begins in the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And we want to be holy and we want to pursue holy. Am I right? Let me help you. Yes. We want to pursue holiness, which is Christ's likeness. And see, the heart is the headquarter of mankind. Jesus gives us a new heart when we're saved, and then he desires to be in the lead chair of command central in our heart. This is what Jesus came to do, to lead us, to clean us, to give us a new heart, and to walk us along this journey to the end. This is what he calls us to do. How important is the heart, you ask? J.C. Ryle said this, What is the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? A new heart. What does the sacrifice of God ask us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts through faith. Whoever controls the heart controls the person. Let me say it again. Whoever controls your heart controls you. So who's controlling your heart? What areas have you not given parts of your heart over to Jesus control? When we look at our lives and we see inconsistencies, it's a heart issue. It just means that's an area we've not surrendered to Christ or we've surrendered to Christ and taken back authority or we're trying to find something outside of Christ. And so... During this Lent season, this is a season for us to be very introspective. This is a season for us to really investigate what's really going on in our heart. So here's the question. Here's the question. And you need to ask this question for yourself. What is my hypocrisy? Isn't that the question he said upon the, uh, the, the Pharisees there? He says, you bunch of hypocrites. And I'm going to argue that we all have hypocrisy. They're, 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 we're hypocrite in areas of our life. Would you agree with me? Give me a nod if you agree with me. If you disagree with me, say no. And I'll say, there it is right there. <laughs> it is. I do. Yes. Yes. And so we need to find out where our heart is not aligned. And so uh, this has been a community message. So Angie yesterday, she's reading the Paul David Tripp 
uh, Lent devotional, which we had out there, and I heard this morning we sold out, sorry. Uh, but anyway, it's this Lent devotional, and she was on day four. And what Paul David Tripp was saying, he's like, the way to find incongruencies or the way to find areas of your life uh, that you are holding back from Christ or you've taken back from Christ is to figure out where you don't want to suffer. He said this. He said, God intends suffering, because this is the season in, during Lent to where we can suffer more. It's good for us. God intends suffering to pry open our hands so we let go of the things of this earth and hold more tightly to Jesus. And then he gives these questions. And I'm going to roll through these questions because these are sub-questions to the main question I'll get back to in a minute. What do you feel you can't live without? You might find some areas of hypocrisy. What's the, what has the ability to break, make or break your day? What has the power to make you very sad? What can produce almost instant happiness? The loss of what would leave you a bit uh, depressed? What do you tend to attach your identity to? What do others have that causes you envy? That's a good one. The absence of what tempts you to question God's goodness? Sit down for just a second. What does your use of money tell you about what's important to you? What fills your fantasies and dreams? What would the videos of your last six weeks reveal about what, you, what has you in its hold? That's scary. Is there a place where you're asking the creation to do what only the creator can do? Those are the questions. Now, reminder, reminder. What season are we in right now? I think it's on the screen. Okay. This is time to put ourselves under the microscope. That's the purpose. And so when we allow sin to linger, when we allow the traditions to trump God's word, when we allow creation to do only what the creator alone is able to do, we will lack congruency in our life. Our lives will not allow, align with our beliefs. I mean, think about it. That's what we're looking for in life. We, we're looking for what God wants to provide for us in all of life. What does God want to provide for us? And what do we need as human beings the most? Well, we need to be loved. We need to feel safe. We need to be comforted. We want approval. We want to have peace. We want to have fun. We want to have enjoyment. We want to be sat satisfied. And God does that to us. Am I right? God can give us all of that. And sometimes he will use his good gifts to give us those things, right? He will. But I don't know about you, but sometimes we take his good gifts too far and they become gods to us, right? I mean, there's nothing better than a good meal where we can sit back and praise the Lord for a good meal. There's nothing better than a quiet evening with your spouse. What a gift from God. There's nothing better than good music, good concert or something like that where you can thank God for his common grace that these people can sing and play music like that. But we can exaggerate those things, right? There's nothing better than a good night's sleep, but we can exaggerate that, can't we? And that becomes God's. Why do we exaggerate those things? Perhaps because those are tangible, physical things that we can see, feel, taste, touch, and all those things, and God is invisible, and that makes it really easy for us. But what happens is those things become our supreme love. They become our idols, and, and, and they addict us. They, they enslave us to where we have to keep going back to them over and over and over. Why? Because that buzz wears off for a while. And we go back over and over for another hit. And that's how they capture us. And what this does, listen to me, it deforms us. It deforms our heart. That's what Jesus is talking about right there. It deforms our heart. They begin to control and they begin to lead us. 
And, and the question is, where do we find deformities? In any area of inconsistencies of us and what Christ has called us to be. That's where we find it. So back to the main question. What is my hypocrisy? That's the question I want us to wrestle through this week. I mean, and when I say that, I like, don't just think about it right now, cool, and then move on. Like, put it on your phone, put it as a reminder. What is my hypocrisy? It's a great practice for Lent. It's a great place for you to ask God, meet me here. God, do this work in me. God, show me. I think this is the work of the Christian life. Let me finish with this. Eugene Peterson said this. He says, the Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way we do it. Congruence between what is written out in Scripture and our living out what is written. Congruence between a ship and its prow. Congruence between preaching and living. Congruence between the sermon and what is lived in both preacher and congregation. The congruence of the Word made flesh in Jesus and what is lived in our flesh. What is my hypocrisy? Make sure you keep armed with you when you go through this that Jesus died for the hypocrite. Jesus died for our inconsistencies. Jesus died for our lack of consistencies. And he's given us, if you're in Christ, a new heart and resurrection power to engage that. Let's engage that. Let me pray for us and we'll go to the Lord's table together. Jesus, this feels like such a sober text to really look into our lives and see at times we honor you with our lips, but Jesus, our hearts are far from you. Forgive us. Jesus, many of, you, many of us here, we love you dearly. Sometimes the worst things come out of us. Forgive us. Jesus, many of us have desire here. We want to follow you in every way and every area, and yet we are weak. Help us. Enable us. Empower us. Jesus, would you increase our desires for you, especially in this season? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see what hinders us, what distracts us, what trips us up, what enslaves and addicts us. And by your power, may we turn to you and follow you more, trust you more. Grow our desires and affections in you, Jesus. Help us to see this week where our hypocrisies are. Power us to turn away. Free us. Help us to walk in you in all ways. Would it be for our good and for our joy, for the defeat of the enemy in Jesus For your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.